Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part three of the second book of Samuel, chapters 9 through 11. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. The Syrians were arrayed against David, and David fought with them. And David slew the Syrians and the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen. So King David was in active battle with his men. And David defeated them, and they made peace with Israel and became subject to them, which means they would pay tribute, pay taxes to them. Now, in 2 Samuel 11, it's the time when kings go forth to battle. And what this means is after the torrential rains, the farmers can join in the battle after the rains, before the harvest, before the beginning of the harvest, farmers can join the militia of the king and the king goes out and fights with his army. So this is the time when kings go forth in battle, but look at the last sentence, but David remained at Jerusalem. Ding, 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 ding. That should make us perk up because David's supposed to go out. This is the time when kings go. He had just gone in, in that other battle, done fabulous. David's supposed to go out with his men. At the time when kings go forth to battle, David remained at Jerusalem. That's a giant, giant red flag. From Eden to Zion, from Adam to David. David had just brought that Ark of the Covenant into God's new creation, Jerusalem, last week, remember? David is a new type of a new Adam. It's a new creation. It's not Eden, but it's Jerusalem now, the sanctuary of the Lord, the true presence of the Lord, the Ark of the Lord resides there. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. All the other men are out fighting. He's supposed to be out fighting with them, and he's home taking a nap. David arose from his couch, and he was walking upon the roof of the king's house. Now, Jerusalem is the highest city in Israel, topographically. His, the king's palace is at the very top of the hill, so he can survey everything. He's at the top of the world, looking down on the new creation. I'm on the top of the world, looking down on creation. And what does he see? That's right. David is a new Adam. He has a new creation. And what's the original sin of the original Adam? That you can be your own God. You can be your own God. Little G. David is a new Adam. Jerusalem is a new Eden. And Bathsheba is a new Eve. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and free from any shame or any sin. David wants to be his own God. King David is on the top of the world looking down on his kingdom and his subjects, seeing all that is his in his own kingdom, his own new creation. He's done it all. He's made it. He's king over all. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house when he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very, very beautiful. Scholars say that David is about middle age now, middle-aged man. What happens sometimes to middle-aged men and middle-aged women? We have a midlife crisis. I've got everything. I've got everything. I'm still not happy. I've gotten it all on my own doing, and I'm not content. I'm my own God. I don't need anybody else. My best years are behind me. It's called the Bathsheba Syndrome. 
I'm not kidding. It's a real thing. You can Google it. The Bathsheba syndrome. It's the ethical failure of successful leaders. It's been happening since the beginning of time. Just as Eve was naked in the garden, clothed in original holiness, nakedness before the fall, fallen David saw from the highest vantage point, like God, looking down a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Well, after all, the woman is the climax of all God's creation. Of course, we're beautiful, right, ladies? He saved the best for last. David sees and David wants. And St. John tells us in 1 John 2, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And David falls into the threefold temptation. David sees, David lusts, and David wants. And watch the verbs in this whole passage. Think of another Old Testament story with the exact same principles, only a little different. It's the story of Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21. King Ahab was the seventh king of Israel, so it's after David, son of Omri. But Ahab was married to the Venetian princess, Queen Jezebel. And Naboth has several palaces, but one of his palaces is in the Jezreel Valley, and there's a vineyard adjacent to his palace, and he wants the vineyard. But the vineyard belongs to somebody else. It belongs to Naboth. It's adjacent to Ahab's palace, just one of his palaces. How much do you want for this? The king asks Naboth. And Naboth said, well, it's not for sale. I mean, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father. I mean, this is my piece of the promised land. I could never, ever, ever, ever sell this for any price. It's priceless. And and the king Ahab was so vexed and so sullen, and he went back to the castle, and he pouted and pouted and pouted. He laid on his bed. He turned away his face, and he refused to eat food. Jezebel comes in and says, why is your spirit so vexed that you will eat no food? Do you not govern Israel, my love? I will get the vineyard of Naboth. And she sends a letter with the king's seal, and she sets up a false accusation saying that Naboth has cursed God and has cursed the king. And they take Naboth out and stone him to death. Naboth cursed the king. It's a false charge. And she has other men go and kill him because the king would like that piece of land. It's the same principle. Naboth gets stoned dead. So these have similar principles. David sees, David lusts, David wants, David gets. King Ahab sees, he lusts, he wants, he gets. An innocent man will be killed because the king of Israel wanted something that legally belonged to someone else. King Ahab has an innocent man killed over a legal deed that belongs to someone else, but it pleased the king, but it displeased the one true king. Same with David. King David of Israel wanted another man's wife, and he would have an innocent man killed to get what pleased him. After all, the king should have whatever the king wants in his kingdom. God made Adam the king of all creation. Because do you remember, only King Adam had the kingly privilege of assigning names to his subjects. He was the king. Eve was only assigned a name by Adam after the fall. Because before the fall, they were on equal footing. Do you remember? And before the fall, they were equals, man and woman, drawn from man. Maybe she even the climax of creation. They were both naked and not ashamed. And only after King Man eats the fruit of the forbidden tree of knowledge is he named Adam by God. Now God is the king. God names Adam and given the authority to name his wife because now they were no longer on equal footing. Her desire would be for her husband, but he would what? Rule over her. Adam's the king now. Now they know that they're naked and immediately they find leaves to cover their nakedness. This is so important to cover one's nakedness. 
Fallen humans will now need to cover their nakedness. The new creation of Noah, we talk about this a lot, that Ham uncovered his father's nakedness. Whenever you uncover nakedness after the fall, that's going to be a sin. To uncover one's nakedness. Leviticus 18 and 20 discuss disordered sexual relations. They condemn all sorts of different ways of uncovering nakedness. And I'm not going to read through them all, but I just want you to look. You can't uncover nakedness. You can't uncover nakedness of your son's daughter. You can't uncover your father's wife. You can't uncover the nakedness. 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 And everyone skips over Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. But the moral of the story is that fallen humans now should keep their nakedness covered. Adam and Eve immediately used lease to cover their nakedness, with one exception, with one exception. Except when nakedness is ordered to God, then you may uncover it. And when is that? In the marital embrace. Nakedness is ordered to God in a covenantal marriage with God because it images the perfect holy self-gift and self-reception of the Holy Trinity that is found only in the primordial marital embrace. Do you see? That was a huge light bulb for me, seeing that in a different way. Only in covenantal marriage with one another and with God could man and woman uncover their nakedness where it could be if God chose to bless them with new life, which is God's greatest blessing, which we know from Obed-Edom. When God wants to bless, he gives life. Now Adam knew his wife after the fall, and she conceived, and she bore Cain, and she said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Because God has allowed her to be a co-creator with him and Adam to be a co-creator with God. What a gift that was in a covenantal marriage with one another and with God, man and woman could uncover their nakedness, and it might be blessed by God with new life, and they could be co-creators with God. Biggest blessing. Marriage between man and woman became the primordial sacrament. And Adam was not only the king to name all things, including his wife now, but he was also made a priest. He learned how to offer sacrificial animal blood to God in atonement, at one moment, for their sin. Under Adam's kingship, he learned how to guard his garden like he was supposed to. The couple learned how to pray to God. And Adam, the priest king, would offer blood sacrifice to God for the atonement of their sin. And as a priest king, Adam would teach his sons how to pray and how to offer as God had taught Adam. And Cain and Abel would need to carry on the king-priest traditions now that death had entered the world because one day their father would die. And Adam offered animal blood sacrifice with a priestly prayerful heart as Adam had taught him. But Cain's countenance dropped at his sacrifice of fruits and vegetables from the cursed earth that was not accepted by God for atonement. And then envy, that same envy that Wisdom 2 talks about, through the devil's envy, death entered the world. That same envy present in fallen Cain will rear its ugly head as Cain murders his innocent brother and Abel's innocent blood cries out from the cursed earth to God for justice. God marks Cain's forehead. God sends Cain east of Eden and Abel is dead. So Adam's going to teach the next son, Seth, to be a priest king and how to make proper blood atonement to God. So going back now to David, a type of new Adam, David sent and inquired about the woman. Oh, she doesn't have a name. The woman. And when we hear the woman, that hails us right back to Genesis. The woman, Eve's name, the woman, before original nakedness was covered up by sin. David sent and inquired about the woman. And they said, oh, is that not Bathsheba? Oh, she has a name. Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, the wife, the wife of one of your greatest soldiers who's out battling for you right now, king, while you're taking a nap on the couch. And David sent messengers and took her. See that verb? David took her because he's the king. 
And she came to him and he lay with her. David sent, David took, and David lay. And David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And that's the line right in the scripture. She was purifying herself from her uncleanness and all the male commentators go around it. But we have to look at it. It's in Leviticus 15. And when a woman has a discharge of blood, which is her regular discharge from her body, she shall be in her impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And I'm not going to read all of this to you, but anything, whoever touches anything upon which she sits, you got to wash your clothes, you got to bathe yourself, anything, she'll be unclean from the evening. If he lies with her, her impurity is going to be on him, and he'll be unclean for seven days. Uh, Okay, got it. But If she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself another seven days. And on, and then she, after that, she shall be clean. And on the eighth day, guess what she has to do, ladies? She has to take two turtle doves and two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the meeting and offer sacrifice for her uncleanness. So you don't just have to buy pads and tampons. You got to have birds and turtle doves and pigeons. I know you're laughing, but this is so important. You'll see. Because on the eighth day, the woman's body does what? It has a resurrection. All the uncleanness, all the death, all that, all the uncleanness is shed. And guess what? She's able to bear new life again. And that's really important. And the priest shall offer sin offering and burn offering and make atonement for her because she was unclean. But then you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. That's important. My tabernacle that is in their midst. David had just brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem, remember? Did Eve ever menstruate before the fall? No. If we are to interpret the Garden of Eden as the archetypal sanctuary, the tabernacle of the Lord, the true presence of God, This helps us better understand the state of Adam and Eve before and after the fall. Before the fall, they're in a state of moral and ritual purity, original holiness. They could go about freely in the sanctuary, the tabernacle of the garden where God walked in their midst. But after the fall, when they became impure, they were forced to leave the garden, forced to leave the sanctuary, which was sanctified by God's presence. And so because the Garden of Eden was understood as the light of the tabernacle sanctuary, the laws of purity that are instituted within it, nothing impure would have been allowed in the sanctuary in the Garden of Eden. Thus, Eve would not have been seen menstruating before the fall since that would have rendered her ritually impure and incapable of being in the garden sanctuary. Mm. No menses pre-fall. David had carried that sanctuary of God into Jerusalem. This David is a new Adam, a new priest king. On the top of his new creation, his palace in Jerusalem, the new Eden, the ark is there. Bathsheba is a new Eve, a temptation of forbidden fruit in God's garden. And Bathsheba is pure from post-menstruation and her body is able to bear new life again because women, you know your cycle. She's cleansed of her discharge, her issue of blood seven days. She has to wait another seven days so she shall be clean. And on the eighth day, ding, 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 ovulation, right? Bathsheba is able to bear life again. Nakedness before the fall nakedness covered after the fall. And now David is going to uncover Bathsheba's nakedness in a act outside of a covenantal marriage. Will God bless this action of uncovering the new Eve's nakedness? The woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am with child. Children are great blessings.
But this one was conceived in mortal sin by the taking of another man's wife. David's already broken two commandments. You shall not cover your neighbor wife. You shall not commit adultery. Was Bathsheba totally innocent? Hmm. Bathsheba would have known her menstrual cycle. She's bathing now in her ritual bathing in sight of the king's roof. Hmm. Bathsheba would have known that she was at peak fertility in her feminine cycle. Did she assume that King David was at battle with his men, including her own husband Uriah, where King David was supposed to be? This was the time kings went to battle. Maybe she thought, oh, he's gone. Or did she know that King David was home in his palace, gazing down on her nakedness? The author leaves it open-ended for us to think about. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And he said, they, one said, is it, 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 this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, and she was purifying herself from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, I am with child, the woman is pregnant. Now, after the fall in the garden, they covered up real quick, remember? They're hiding from God, and God says, where are you? Of course, he knows. But Adam says, I was naked. I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The woman. She gave me the fruit and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I ate. Now we know her name is Bathsheba, but she's the woman has conceived. And she sent and told David, I'm with child. What's Bathsheba mean? Daughter of the oath. Her name means she's the daughter of the oath. The daughter of the oath is in a covenantal marital oath with her husband, Uriah the Hittite, and she is now pregnant with the king's child. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him, how's Joab doing? How are the people fearing? How is the war prospering? And David said to Uriah, you go down and you wash your feet. Now, that's a Hebrew euphemism for go be intimate with your wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. Oh, how nice. And Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. And he did not go down to his house. What? Uriah said to David, the ark, the ark of Israel and Judah dwells in booze. And my Lord and Joab and his servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Wow, Uriah is a man of great virtue. David said to Uriah, well, remain here today also, and tomorrow you can depart. And Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him to eat and drink in his presence, and David made him drunk. And in the evening, he went to lie on his couch with one of the servants of the Lord. But Uriah did not go down to his house. David's making him stay a little longer because there's this window of ovulation. David hit it on the early end and Uriah could hit it on the later end. And David would be off the hook, right? Uriah the Hittite is more virtuous than King David. Just like when David used to be more virtuous than King Saul, remember? In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. That's how much he trusted Uriah's virtue. He won't read it. He trusts him not to read it. In the letter David wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Joab was besieging the city. He assigned Uriah to the place where he knew, he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell and Uriah the Hittite was slain also. Joab sent 
and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, okay, now we have David committing his third mortal sin. Commandment number five, thou shall not kill. Thou shall not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not kill. He's done three mortal sins. When you have finished telling the news about the fighting to David, if the king's anger rises and he says, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot you from the wall? Who killed Ambimelech? We talked about this story once before. The woman from the wall threw a millstone down on Ambimelech's head in Judges chapter 9, and Ambimelech asked his armor bearer to spear him, just like Saul had done to end his life. But the messenger came to David, all that Joab had sent him to tell, he told him. And, you know, they're waiting to see if, if King David's going to get super angry. The archer shot. They, it was, it, your servant Uriah is dead. Did the king's anger arise? No, not at all. David said, oh, don't let this matter trouble you. David's not upset that Uriah is dead. The king's anger did not rise. David's CYA plan had worked. Do you know what CYA is? Okay, just in case you don't, it's a modern English euphemism, and it means activity done to an individual by to protect themselves from possible subsequent criticism, literal penalties, legal penalties, or other repercussions, usually in a work-related or bureaucratic context. The wife of Uriah. Now, now we're not even calling her Bathsheba anymore. The wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, and she made lamentation for her husband. That's typically seven days of weeping and mourning. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent. Okay, now David was doing all this sending. He sent this and he sent that. And he sent, now the Lord God, the King of kings and Lord of lords is going to send a prophet of God to David. His name is Nathan. He came to him and he said, there were two men in a certain city. The one was rich, the other was poor. The rich man had very, very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. So he had legally purchased it. And he brought it and grew and grew up with him and his children. And it used to eat a morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him, this little lamb. Now, there was a traveler. He came to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd and prepare it the way Pharaoh had come to him. He took the poor man's little lamb and prepared it, slaughtered it, slaughtered it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger. He wasn't angry when he heard about Uriah, but now David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. You are the man. David, that man is you. And says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and into your bosom. I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Why do you do evil in his sight? Why have you smitten Uriah the Hittite with the sword? Why have you taken his wife to be your wife and have him slain by the sword of the Ammonites? Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, David, because you despised me. Remember that. The sword will never depart from David's house. You have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. You are the man. You are the man in the parable. You are the man in the story. 
thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Remember it. I will take your wives before your eyes and I will give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Remember that. That's going to happen. You'll want to come back after Christmas. You did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, the most important words that have come from his mouth yet, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. So what we say when we go to confession, bless me, Father, for I have sinned against the Lord. We got to admit it. We got to repent. I have sinned against the Lord. What Adam did not do. Remember Adam? David said, I have sinned against the Lord. What did Adam say? Adam rationalized and blamed the woman, the woman, the one you made for me. She did it. She made me do it. The woman, I have sinned against the Lord. He owns it. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin and you shall not die. The Torah said anyone in an adulterous relationship should be stoned to death. And the Lord has spared David's life. You will not die. His quick repentance, he owned it. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. In David's childhood, people thought that he was born of an adulterous affair. Remember his mother, Nitzvah? David, God will not let David's own child have that reality. Their next child has no chance of belonging to Uriah the Hittite, but one of the legitimate royal lineage of righteous Jesse. And David will write the most beautiful psalm, maybe of his life, Psalm 51, that we sang today. Miserere Deus, have mercy on me, O God. According to thy steadfast love, according to thy abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Although he was three times anointed, David was not the Messiah. David needs a Savior. One is coming. One is near. One from the house of David. One is coming to the house of bread, Bethlehem, the city of David, to feed lame people from the king's table of his own body. The one who will free King David and who will free all of us from our sins. Miserere mi Deus. God, have mercy on me for your goodness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for this King David and how much of ourselves we see in this story. We are sorry. I am sorry, Lord, when I sin against you and others. Teach me to repent. Keep me soft-hearted. Help me claim my sins. Help me see my blind spots. Miserere, mi Deus. God, have mercy on me for your goodness and on all of us as we await the coming of the Savior from the house of David this Christmas. Amen. That was part three of the second book of Samuel, chapters 9 through 11, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.